0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed.
2: This is Cork Today. Cork Today. With Patricia Messenger on C103. What's greatest hit? Yeah.
3: And a very good Wednesday morning to you as we welcome you along to the programme. Bernie's taking your calls. She's in for John Paul all this week, 0818 103 103. We'd love to hear from you. You can text or WhatsApp us as well to 0862 103 103. And of course, never forget, our email's open 24 7, cork today at c103.ie. And we are constantly hearing from healthcare workers who are working under so much pressure in our healthcare system. So with that in mind, disappointing to read that the applications by Irish healthcare staff to work in Australia has soared by almost a thousand. And now people are saying that the HSE recruitment freeze is only going to drive that number even uh, higher. And it's the Irish Daily Mail. They have a front page story. They managed to get figures from the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency. And that shows that the successful applications for this year stands at close to two and a half thousand healthcare professionals left Ireland to go to work in uh, Australia and that's up from 1,500 uh, just 12 months ago. But if you go back to just 2018, it's 140% uh, increase. There are now just under 9,000 Irish medical professionals who are registered to work in Australia. And if you go back to 2018, that figure was just over uh, 2,000. The release of the stark figures comes as our own junior doctor's They're threatening a ballot for industrial action in the new year and the reason for their ballot is the HSE's recruitment freeze. The Irish Medical Organisation who represent these junior doctors have warned that the recruitment freeze will not only lead to dangerous conditions for patient care but they're fearful that we will also see more and more junior doctors leave Ireland in much greater numbers and they'll go for positions abroad where they feel they are much more Respected and supported, and they also feel they'll have much better career uh, pathways. The Australian government now they initiated a billboard campaign, and they were clever. They put up these large billboards near Irish hospitals last year, and the billboard ad was telling them that the Australians were looking to recruit healthcare staff. And at the time, it was part of the pandemic recovery plan for Australia. Now unions in Ireland are warning that unless steps are taken to improve the working. Conditions, conditions Conditions of those in the sector, there will continue to be an exodus of Irish hospital workers and they'll all head abroad. They've warned that the recruitment ban here is playing right into the hands of the foreign recruiters, with nurses in Australia on a starting salary earning on average €10,000 more than what they would earn in this country and of course part of the deal to try to get the Irish to go over to work in the Australian hospitals. They also give relocation costs and some of those can be, some of the hospitals that can be up to €10,000 uh, to help the young doctor or the nurse or, or anyone from the multi-D teams, physiotherapists, speech and language therapists. So they pay them up to 10000 to help them with the move to uh, Australia. Now the Irish Nurses and Midwives organisation, they're saying it's playing right into the hands of other countries, not just Australia, but also just across the water in the UK. They're only too delighted to offer full-time, permanent secure jobs to nurses and other healthcare professions. And of course we're known for the high class of training that we give to all of our our medical professionals. So other countries love to see somebody landing on their shores that has been fully trained here in uh, Ireland. The Irish Medical Organisation, the Junior Doctors' Committee, they're also expressing fears about Irish doctors moving abroad. They say Irish doctors have been approached almost on a daily basis by health services in Canada, Australia, New Zealand and the UK because they're all desperately trying to encourage them to work in their system. But it's a system where they value the staff, they support them and they respect them. Now, the response from the HSE and the government, though, is the polar opposite. The new figures come as a survey has revealed that nine in 10 doctors in Ireland cautioned that staff shortages here presents a significant threat to patient uh, safety. And of course the the INMO have a survey out today showing that last year, or this year, the year we're just coming to the close of, uh, was the worst for overcrowding in Irish hospitals and obviously they're looking at the numbers that were on uh, trolleys and Cork University Hospital unfortunately always comes out very high on that particular survey, Limerick Hospital was the worst but Cork University Hospital was the second most people lying on trolleys uh, this year. Now the government are coming out fighting though against all of these figures and all of these announcements by junior doctors and nurses. The teacher, for example, Leo Varadkar, he was speaking during the summer in the in the doll um, that all countries are competing for healthcare staff, and he says you have got to remember people come in both directions between Australia and uh, uh, Ireland, and that in a way is also backed up by the Department of Health because they say Ireland is a country with both inward and outward migration of healthcare workers. Doctor retention data is closely monitored by the Health. See, and they say the data indicates that while there are patterns of high outward migration at various stages the non-consultant hospital doctors, the junior doctors, there is a pattern of return With a high number coming back, they come back to either commence further postgraduate training or they come back to take up a consultant post in Ireland. And actually, that's also backed up by the Central Statistics Office because they're showing that 60% of Irish nurses and midwife graduates who emigrate uh, do later return. But in the meantime, and particularly at the moment, we're having a bit of a battle. We are very much reliant now on the immigrant workforce to back up our healthcare uh, system while many of our youngest And our brightest are moving to Australia. And I always feel it's for the families of the Young doctors and nurses and, and physiotherapists and speech and language and occupational therapists and midwives, um, because Australia is just so far away. Whatever about going to work in the UK, there's always the possibility. You know, every month you could get home for a weekend. But when people go all the way to Australia, it's just such a long journey and so expensive to come over and uh, back. You know, when you wave them goodbye at the airport, that you're not going to see them for quite some time. But then when you speak to those young medical professionals in Australia, their work life balance is incredible in Australia so you can see the reason why a country like Australia is so attractive for them. 0818 103 103. Bernie taking your calls. But yesterday we were offering words of advice on uh, what to buy teachers primary school teachers for uh, Christmas and did really a huge reaction uh, to the email we'd received. We we'll have another email in and this is a kind of a slightly awkward one but let's see if we can help out this particular mum who 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 writes, Hi Patricia, I'm hoping your listeners may be able to offer me advice around an issue I'm having with my wonderful mother-in-law. Note I say the word wonderful as she truly is and is a fantastic grandmother to my children. But my issue is around her driving which isn't great, unfortunately. At the moment, she collects our children from school as both myself and my husband work full time. So she collects and takes them to her house where she kindly gives them dinner most days. Now, some of the other parents at the school gate have told, have told me that she allows my children to sit in the car without their seatbelts on and that her driving can be erratic at times. Now, one of the other mothers has approached me and has offered to drive the children to my mother-in-law's house and drop them off every day after school. The issue is... I gave my mother-in-law 50 euro a week to cover her petrol costs and if I go with the other mother doing the drop-off then I'm going to have to give her the 50 euro instead. I just don't know how to bring this issue up with my mother-in-law as I don't want to offend her and I also know that the 50 euro covers her petrol bill for the week so she would be down money but sadly we can't afford to pay them both. Any suggestions on how I can handle this situation would be most welcome as we are going to my mother-in-law's house for Christmas dinner and I don't want it to be awkward. Oh dear God. Oh, uh, I don't even know where to begin to unpack um, this one. You do sound like you have a wonderful mother-in-law and you do sound like you have a lovely relationship with her and she sounds like an absolute gem. The fact that she's giving your kids their dinner which is taking pressure off you coming home from work and having to turn around and uh, cook for them and I wonder does she get the homework done as well at the same time Uh, yeah the issue and then how do you, I mean what (laughs) erratic uh, driving, I wonder what the other mothers are saying, the one on the seatbelts, well I'd be having a chat I don't know what age your children are I know they're both primary school children I would be saying to your children to make sure that when they get in Nana's car or in anyone's car that they must put on their seatbelt, put the responsibility back on the children for the seatbelt. I don't know what the erratic driving is all about. Um, and, and do you bring it up? If, and it is your mother-in-law. It would, if you are going to go down this route of getting the other mother to collect the children and drop them home to granny's instead, then perhaps her son, your husband, is the one to uh, bring it up. But yeah, if you're going to be bringing it up this side of Christmas, which is obviously what you're planning on doing, it could be very awkward around the Christmas dinner table this year. Anyway, we'll open the phone lines and the text message service. We've got some very wise listeners listening to uh, our programme. How does this mum sort this one out? She wants to take the school run away from the mother-in-law, but the mother-in-law will be down the €50. I think that's probably going to be the sting in the tail. Um. How does she get around it? 0818 103 103. Your thoughts welcomed. You can text or WhatsApp to 0862 103 103. Now yesterday, Owen English of the Irish Examiner highlighted the story of a group of local residents who have built their own flood defence because they couldn't wait any longer for the state to do it for them. Denny Finn is of Bannanhasig Village Association and he joins me uh, to tell us what exactly they have done. Good morning to you, Denny. Mm, sorry, the wrong button is pressed. There. Good morning, Denny.
0: Sorry, I got cut off. Cut off yeah, there. You're sorry, okay. Babette.
3: You're back with us. Good morning to yeah, you. Yeah, you're yeah. welcome. Now, firstly, well done. Uh, this is a terrific uh, uh, initiative. I suppose. Take us back. When when were you last flooded, and how bad was it?
0: Well, it's it started in two thousand nine, two thousand and fifteen, and in October this year.
3: The storm, Babette. The
0: storm, Babette. Yeah, yeah.
3: How many houses were affected? 8 houses. And how bad?
0: Well, once you get an inch of water of 15 inches of water, it's all the same. In my house 15 inches.
3: Oh my god. And and, and the other previous floods, were they as bad?
0: Yes, uh, yes as bad, maybe worse. On on the water on the river is very funny. Um it it, it shows a different thing every time it comes. It's it's hard to understand the, the way the water travels.
3: And I'm told, Denny, that you've lived in the area oh, for 70 years, or oh, oh, all of your all of your life. When did you, my... yeah When did you start to have problems with flooding? Or do you always remember flooding when you were growing up? No,
0: 2009 was the first.
3: And why do you think two thousand and nine was the first?
0: Well, well I have it documented there. In look, look, it's been over and over. I, I, blame. Well, look, look, I'm not blaming the farmers. I'm blaming the, the, the government that, that allowed the, the ditches and we paid the farmers to knock the ditches, which were natural dams.
3: They held. They held and the water back.
0: They held the water back. And another issue: um, changing the run of the road, the wish down to wish down to Bandon Road towards the halfway. Uh, to me. There was a, a, a meandering stream coming down there through Silly's and everything, and then they built a road and they put a big pipe underneath it. And to the speed of water that enters into into
3: the valley is the problem. Yeah, yeah, the water has to go somewhere, and when you when you yes, interfere I mean, with the floodplain, you know what you expect it is going to go somewhere. That's correct. So, who came up with the idea that you'd get out there and do a DIY flood defence?
0: Well. I'm, uh, there's four of us involved in in the Village Association, which is, which we, 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 we we pride ourselves in. And uh, the Fairy Green, and I just after the flooding, I, I was actually over in the the Fairy Green, which we call the Fairy Green, uh, and I met Dennis, the chairman uh, of, of, of our organization. And uh, I said to him, Dennis, I said, enough is enough. And I said, something has to be done. So this is what we came up with, and uh, this is where we are.
3: Did you ha- did you need planning permission?
0: No, no, no. Um, we brought it up with the council, and uh, they just put their hands up. They said nothing. In other words, they didn't say go ahead or no. But uh, we 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 could have acquired uh, with what we call we from 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 a, a landfill, but we'd have no permission, uh, or he'd have no no um, uh, permit to enter. Private land.
3: Okay, so to so just explain exactly what what you've done in Balunhasik.
0: Well, what we've done in Balunhasik, we, we acquired um, uh, 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 off of your which would be a mollabwee. it would be an in product of, of 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 sand. And um, uh, I went and looked at it, and uh, we agreed that he agreed. He said this will do it, and um, I I I came back to the land and said we we have it, and um, being being from a quarry. We did not need no permit to enter private property. He didn't. So that's what I started, and we we built up an embankment, which a lot of us had had done, but there was lots of gaps here and there, and um, lots of places where where, where there were um, the, the, uh, the water came over this time.
3: So the plan would be that the embankment, if there, if God forbid we were to get another storm as bad as as Babette, with that amount of water, the embankment will hold the water back from the houses. That's correct. The, 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 there must have been a cost involved. How did you cover the cost?
0: A GoFundMe page well, well, it was organised. Okay. And, uh, yeah, and um, it's ongoing. And uh, we're very appreciative to the support we've got from the locals and the community and, and from beyond. It's so it's going well. Yeah. So I think we'll have enough to cover uh, the, the, cost,
3: the cost. Yeah. And the, the damage that was done in October, I mean, because you say you've had the... The, the previous 209 and 215. Am I right in saying none of you have got house insurance? You can't get flood insurance?
0: Not since 2009. So so we've lost big, big time. I'm talking about myself individually. Yeah. Um, uh, our kitchen was damaged and um, we waited until this summer to put in the kitchen. We had it in only three months and
3: it oh, oh, God, Danny, that's heartbreaking. That's life. And all, and all the flooring. Anyone with wooden floors, they're they're gone. You can't yeah, skirting yes. we're, boards,
0: yeah, oh, everything. Yeah, we are looking in 2015 at our own expense. We put on all tiles. Now we are hoping that they will stay down. Time will tell. So we don't know.
3: So if you, if you're in the one of the households that don't have house in, flood insurance, and we know there was many many people caught uh, through no fault of your own, you're just not able to get the flood insurance. Were you able to access the government funds, you know, the, the funds that they put through the Red Cross?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I got somebody off the Red Cross that time in 2015 because I'm, I'm a coal, I I'm was a coalman and uh, what I believe leave anyway, I got funds, uh, 3,000 something, from the Red Cross. The only reason I got it was that I had, was paying rates on the shed that I had. I wouldn't have got it otherwise.
3: Well, wow, there seems to be a bit of a problem with that fund, doesn't it? Not every, it's not as easy well, to the, access.
0: The, the, the fund that, that's there at the moment, now, we did receive, now, the, the first phase was €600, Euros, roughly.
3: That was the initial outlay, yeah.
0: Yeah, 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 in case we'd starve. Yeah. Um, and uh, the second one, which we, we had to push, that, that that's for fridges and, and thing that, that that like uh, kitchen tables in that day. We, we we got it yesterday morning. Houses okay. into our bank six thousand.
3: Yeah, no, I know there was there's a bit of red tape, isn't there? We're getting different quotes and stuff. there. I know they have to dot the i's and cross the t's, but I just think what families like what like what you and other families and it's the same in Middleton. What you've had to go through, I think they should make that kind of process as simple as possible. You've enough on your plate. Without trying to fight, you know, a, a system that just, yeah, it, it, it exacerbates me at times when I hear uh, people having to fight systems l- uh, like that. Anyway, back to your flood defence. Yeah, there,
0: yeah. Before you go from there, yeah. I'll give you an example. My new kitchen.
3: Yeah.
0: I paid for it. I have a receipt for it. And I have to get two quotes for it to replace it. Isn't that a joke? <laughs>
3: instead of just saying uh, and I mean how recently
0: the seat is there I paid for it yeah. it went in three months ago yeah and,
3: and that's, that won't do that won't do yeah it makes no sense it just makes it makes no, it, it sense. Makes no. no, no, no. sense at no. all no. the OPW then Denny uh, has announced um, along with Cork County Council, the appointment of a consultant for the first stage of a five-stage process to develop a flood relief scheme for the area, but the OPW did say the flood relief scheme could take up to 10 years to design and build. I think you were right to go ahead and do your own.
0: Well, well, to be honest about it, going along the way, I thought we'd have it up and running by 2025, but well, that's not the case now. But, but, but going back from there, like it was very ironic that uh, on Wednesday we got an email saying that the, the, the consultant engineers, there was a delay in this. And all of a, a sudden, a couple of days later on Monday morning, oh, great announcement. Cock County Council, we have a, a, a consultant appointed. To me now, that is a sham.
3: Well, that announcement came just as they knew you were about to go public with your dam. Which was your in Yeah, it's, it's,
0: yeah well, they knew <laughs> could, it's, it's yeah. only this week. It's yeah, only this week, yeah. We got an email last Wednesday.
3: Yeah, you could. You could and just, then all yeah. of
0: a sudden they had, they had them appointed by Monday yeah, because of all the, the media coverage. It's still
3: going to take quite some time though. That flood relief is it, still. It, it yeah. Is yeah is would yeah. you, would, Denny, would you encourage other communities to give it a go and do what you guys have done?
0: Well, my advice to people, 2009 of us, we were very naive and uh, we said, "Yeah, look, it'll never happen." Until 2015 it happened, but we sat in our backside, to be honest about it. I'd advise anyone that can do anything, stand up and be counted and and make them aware and show them up, to be honest about it, that enough is enough and and don't sit down like we did since 2015.
3: Okay, and if your money's only came in this week, Denny, do do I take it then some of the houses are not back to normal for Christmas?
0: Oh, there's none. Of, there's none in no, the no. houses. Like I, I have a kitchen. Like I, I have a issue. i just stuck in stuck in the the kitchen. I can't get it out. Even.
3: Oh, gosh, it'll be well into the oh, new. Oh no, year. no. Every, every, everyone is everyone it's is a, in the same.
0: It's board the same. I'm Not just myself. Ah, oh,
3: gosh. Yeah. Well, listen. Well done. Well, well done on the initiative for you and the rest of uh, the gang. And uh, happy Christmas to you, Denny, and the rest it, of it, the gang in Ben and Can I, a few
0: words to say, please? You can, yeah. Uh, to told the local community thank you, and. Uh, as it's Christmas, I hope everyone have a happy Christmas, including the council and the OPW.
3: Okay, many happy returns to you, Danny. You mind yourself, okay? God bless. God bless. I can see he's getting a bit emotional. It's, it's it's a tough, tough thing to go to. I mean, anyone who's experienced a flood in their house uh, will know, but it's just a wonderful initiative on behalf of the Ballon Village Association. And they've built their own little DIY flood defence. And please God, it will work uh, for them until they, event the OPW and the council eventually get to put in a proper flood relief scheme for them. 0818. One o three one o three. Bernie's taking your calls. You can text, you can WhatsApp to 0862 103 103. Now, if you're buying or considering buying hurling or camogie helmets this year as a Christmas present, the GAA are warning people to be very careful about the brand that you buy and to explain why. I'm joined by Jim Bulger. Now, Jim is chairperson of the Gaelic Games Helmet Working Group. Good morning to you, Jim morning Patricia. And you're wel- I'm very well and you're welcome to the programme. Now you're actually telling people to stop using. It's a particular brand. It's the Gola helmet. Can you tell me why?
1: Yeah it, it's, they're not actually Gola helmets. They're, um, unscrupulous people are, are putting the Gola logo onto helmets that are don't meet the required standard which is IS355 and uh, the, I suppose they're trying to make money on the back of our players and compromise their safety by um, advertising these helmets that don't meet the standard and they're poorly manufactured. They're incomplete in the sense that the face guard doesn't come complete with the helmet. The helmet is a question set or is a, the helmet is a, a set that comes entirely as a uh, complete with the, the helmet should come complete with visor as well or face guard and that, that's not attached to this particular helmet. So the players then have to fit their own face guards to it. So it's it's not meeting any of the standards that are required. It's not CE marked, and it doesn't meet the IF standard 355. And we have partnered, I suppose, or worked in collaboration with the uh, Competition Consumer Protection Commission, and we released uh, a press statement the other day and we also have additional details on our website which is um learning um 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 learning sorry, learning uh, So the information is there as well, Patricia. Yeah, just but
3: for,
1: it's really it's it's really it's really to just to forewarn people that are they should only buy from approved manufacturers and we have uh, six approved manufacturers. Micro Coopers, O'Neill's, Mark Azuri, and Attack, and you know there's quite a selection of um, helmets there. Helmets there that okay, these with the these standard, these Patricia.
3: Gola helmets. Where, where are
1: they on sale? They're on sale online, primarily. Ah. Yeah, and um, now there are some record companies that sell online as well, Patricia. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But still, it's just buyer beware as ever. But um, you know, and and and. Goal is, I suppose, one of the more prominent uh, substandard helmets that's available online. Like, the material in the helmets is not up to scratch. There are protruding uh, screws and nuts and so on like that that could cause damage to the players as well. And I, I just think that's, you know, really the safest thing to do is to ensure that you're going to a reputable manufacturer and supplier um And that you're happy that it is a legit company, even if you were buying online. But to to be, to be careful that you're not going to um, compromise the safety of, you know, children in particular. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. That's
3: why, that's why the children wear the helmets. It's, it's to keep them safe. Do you know, Jim, have the, has, have these particular fake helmets, have they been popular?
1: Uh, yeah, anecdotally, they are popular and they seem to be, you know, from a fashion perspective, trendy ah. to wear them because they're a retro helmet as such or they're trying to make them out to be a, a retro helmet, you know. So they are popular enough, we believe. But again, it's, it's a, you know, this player safety is paramount importance. We have a rule then as well that, you know, the, you know it's the player's responsibility to wear a, a helmet that complies. But, you know, notwithstanding that, if you get a present of this, it can be, uh, you know, it can add to the problems as well. And, and you know, they, they are attractive to certain a certain cohort of young people now that they, they find these helmets very attractive.
3: Seemingly. so and that's what we're trying to so to, to, to prevent. Any so, to injury. any parent listening who's already purchased uh, one of these, yeah. goals, are you saying get rid of them?
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah,
3: yeah.
1: Like, like, why would you endanger your child's safety?
3: Yeah,
1: you know, they're just. Uh, they're just an no, oh no completely. I'm afraid, Patricia. You know?
3: and, and the big warning sign is is, is, is is when you're buying any of these helmets. Is the helmet fully assembled?
1: Exactly. Like it, it's a complete. Like the the helmet is a helmet system. So it's an item of person protective equipment PPE. And um, if it's not complete, it's not. If the system is not complete, it doesn't comply with the standard. It's as
3: simple as that and i'm assuming if the majority if they're being bought online it's probably somebody overseas they they're coming uh, from overseas somewhere yeah
1: and, and and that's a good point because it, generally speaking if you buy within the eu it's safer as well so if you're buying from outside the eu uh, you know you want to be extra vigilant to it because it may not comply at all like these uh, with that and it's ironic that gola don't manufacture helmets at all now so
3: so you couldn't uh, possibly buy, the, yeah. Yeah. You yeah. couldn't possibly buy a Gola helmet because guess what, Gola don't make. Because Gola are a re, Gola are a reputable brand. They're just. Oh, they are, yeah. yeah.
1: And and just their logo has been used by these unscrupulous people, as I alluded to earlier.
3: Patricia, you also in, you in your press release, uh, Jim. You also say do not modify the helmet in in any way. Why is that important?
1: Well, it's very important because if we've had, I suppose, over the years. People have removed bars from the face guard, for example, and then you're compromising the safety straight away. So, <clears throat> anything that affects the integrity of the the helmet set um, <clears throat> is a no-no. <coughs> Excuse me. And there was also um, there was also, I suppose, a number of players over the years would uh, retrofit a, a lighter face guard onto the helmet as well, and that's a no-no. You're compromising the safety. Are they? You're compromising the the safety element of the system. Then straight away, once you interfere with it in any way, and that's why 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 pay for a helmet that's complies, then modify it to undermine the safety mm. by by either taking a bar out of it or by uh, retrofitting a different face guard.
3: Okay. Okay. Cause yeah, is, and some of
1: that was for aesthetic purposes, apart from anything okay. else. <laughs> you know,
3: believe it or not, people want to look well on the pitch, even wearing they a helmet. They do, they <laughs> <do>. <laughs> but they it's do. all lads, lads, and lassies. It's all down to safety, please. So, so leave them alone. You mentioned that the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission, the CCPC, have been involved yeah. uh, with you with this warning. Uh, are they in any way trying to stop the sale of these fraudulent helmets? Well, they are. They, they have.
4: Helmets.
1: They're very vigilant. Yeah, their officers are are proactive. In relation to preventing the sale, you know, so that's that's their, uh, I suppose, baby week, and uh, that's what they're doing, I believe. So that that's a positive as well.
3: They'll probably, and more than likely, a lot of these counterfeit products. It'll be a Facebook post. It'll pop it up would, on Facebook or something.
1: Yeah, yeah, you have to be very, uh, very, very wary on social, on social sites and other platforms of that nature. And Facebook is certainly one of them.
3: OK, somebody says, uh, Hi Trish, I have a green Gola helmet. I have it with years. I put on the Kilkenny face guard on it this year for safety reasons. The question is, says Dave, am I covered? Is it, is it still OK?
1: No, it's, it's not, I'm afraid, because again, you're, you're, you're retrofitting a face guard to an old helmet. It it's just doesn't meet the standard. I'm afraid.
3: Go buy a new helmet, Patricia. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then, by, by when that comes here. Yeah?
3: And Pat says, um, Patricia, is Jim aware that ice hockey helmets are being sold as GAA helmets?
1: Yeah, we're aware of that as well, and we've, we've come across that before. So, so will you, anything that doesn't like that's why I have to emphasise IS three five five stamped on the helmet, C mark, and ensure the C mark looks well. is, is properly marked because. Some of these counterfeit ones, the see mark, marking is very poor on them, and uh, uh, and, and any of those uh, companies that I mentioned—Micro, Coopers, O'Neill, Mark, and Zuri—just buy f- f- from those their ranges, and uh, they should all comply. Mm-hmm. So, no, and that's the safest thing to do, Patricia. Are they expensive? Uh, it varies, and, and the, the ironic thing is. Some of these gold helmets were selling for around the €300 Euro mark, or that was the price being asked anyway, That's which so is multiples of what a, com- a helmet that complies, actually, is is, is, uh, is being asked for as well. But so, look, there's a variety of ranges there. You know, within that, you can pay, you know, 30 to €60 or maybe a bit more, Um of the helmets that can fly, but it's a, it's a massive jump then up to three hundred. Yeah, absolutely,
3: absolutely. But yeah, if, but if so. they' uh, but a genuine helmet, if it's looked after well, I imagine it does for a good few years.
1: Oh, it would, of course. Yeah, yeah it would last last yeah. for years. You know, uh, you want to care and maintenance of helmets is all important that you don't throw it into the boot of the car and throw the messages in on top of it then later on and only take it out for for training you know, the next or the next match or whatever. So it's pretty important that you care yeah. for look after the him. air and item of person personal protective equipment as I said. And uh, look after them, yeah, yeah, exactly. If okay. you get a blow on the head then just check it again, but it is still intact, you know, because you want to ensure that the next time you might get a blow, it does its job. And that's that's of you know, obviously very important for the player. You know,
3: but keep well away from these fake branded um, it, it, helmets exactly. because there's a risk of serious injury to the face, to yeah. the head and uh, to the eyes. OK, so it's it's the Gola brand. They are uh, counterfeit yeah. branded. Yeah. OK. We'll,
1: we'll right, Beware of the, of the hockey helmets as well, you know. Being sold, being sold as well, you
3: know. OK, and sure. le- learninggaa.ie people can get more information from.
1: Yeah, it's... Learning.ga.ie, all the information is there. And again, stick to those six uh, companies, their brands, yeah. Okay. And and, and look out for the IS355. And everything
3: should be fine. Okay. okay. Listen, have a good Christmas, thanks. Jim, and thanks, thanks for joining for this, us. Uh, yeah, good you. morning Bye-bye. to you. Bye-bye. That is uh, Jim Bulger with a good word of warning on those counterfeit hel- helmets, please. We want to keep all the boys and girls and everybody else uh, safe. And Jim is chairperson of the Gaelic Games Helmet Working Group. 0818 103 103. Bernie's taking your calls. You can text her WhatsApp to 0862 103, 103 Some of your thoughts uh, coming in. Oh, firstly, can I give a shout out. Uh, Nora Casey was on to us to say that there is a food appeal for Cork Penny Dinners happening at Balinamarov Church. It's happening this Saturday. They're running it all day from 10am in the morning until 4 in the afternoon at Balinamarov Church. That's in the Coachford area. It's just by the local national school and they're looking for all non-perishable food items please. So if you're out doing a bit of shopping you might think of picking up a few bits and pieces. I did hear Katrina Toomey uh, saying obviously they they welcome all the non-perishable items Put into hampers and things, but they're looking for some of the treats as well. She had a huge amount of you know chocolates and selection boxes, but she said unfortunately they're all gone. Uh, now they went very very quickly this year. So much is the demand this year at Cork Penny Dinner. So if you want to buy some of the nice little treats uh, as well, so Ballinamore Church next Saturday. And good luck to everybody involved in that collection between ten and uh, four. And Margaret O'Rourke and Donora. Well, sent me in an email this morning just asking me to say a massive thank you to everyone who supported the Christmas markets in uh, Doneraile. She says, as the saying goes, every little helps. And they were delighted that they raised €1,125 for the Irish Kidney Association at the Christmas markets in Donnarell. And they're now hoping that it helps somebody on what can be a very difficult, difficult uh, journey. She said a lot of hard work goes into organising these uh, fundraisers. So the committee now are taking a well rest and they'll regroup again in the new year and plan their next uh, journey so uh, happy Christmas uh, to Margaret and all of the gang in Donrrell they do incredible work every year but well done if you went along to the Donrel Christmas markets know that you have to contribute over one thousand euro for the Irish kidney uh, association which is a very very worthwhile uh, wise wise worthwhile cause. OK, some of your calls coming in. Jerry in Middleton has been on to us and this is to do with the ongoing fallout from the hotel that was set on fire in Galway uh, last weekend and in particular the backlash against the local councillors and the Fianna Fall local councillors in the area in Galway. Jerry feels that most of the Irish people would agree with those councillors in Galway that Ireland is full and that we should be looking after our own first. And now he says to hear that Miho Martin and the Fianna Fáil party are going to discipline those uh, councillors. He says, what does that mean for democracy? Surely they have a right to free speech. And what Jerry is talking about, the two councillors uh, in question have been reprimanded for comments about uh, asylum seekers. One is uh, Councillor Seamus Whelan. He was the guy who blamed the government policies for the fire last weekend, while another Fianna Fáil councillor, Noel Thomas, said that the The inn is full and Ireland should not be taking in any more asylum seekers. Now, Micheál Martin in particular uh, took Noel Thomas to task over his comments that the inn is uh, full because... Mio Martin says, well, there was room in the inn. There was a hotel facility there, but he said that hotel facility was empty, so there was room at that inn, and that would have been in a position to uh, take people in. But now, of course, and it has been, uh, part of it has been burned to the ground, so that can't be used to house asylum seekers. And the the of Mio Martin yesterday said, accommodating migrants has been government policy for a number of decades. It's both under European laws and it's also under the Geneva Convention. Miho Martin said there's no link between migrants and bad behaviour. He says the government must create a better narrative around communicating the issue of migration. Miho Martin said people can experience fear and there's an obligation to ease any concerns but he said it's important to have an evidence-based approach. The Honish said the broader story of migration has been positive and there's been no appreciable increase in any crime in any location where a migrant centre has opened over the dec- over the uh, decades, so I, but I do I was glad to hear him say that there needs to be a better narrative around communicating the issue of migration. This is the problem we've been having since Russia decided to evade Ukraine, and we ended up getting a number of Ukrainians coming to to live here. We started to see within a few months of the Ukrainians starting to arrive, and then obviously with the on, we, we always had people arriving looking for international uh, protection, but it's when communities are not told what's happening. And, you know, I heard, you know, Mary Lou MacDonald um, saying, you know, simply doing a leaflet drop or a last minute briefing of public reps days before international protection applicants are going to move into a community and then expecting the, the community... To just simply, you know, not respond in any way is simply wrong, and that something needs to be done about that. It's about giving the communication because we've had wonderful communities all over, all over the country. We've, we've got good, decent people who have done nothing but shown support to refugees when they've arrived in their area. But we unfortunately now have seen a number of arson attacks. But anyway, Jerry in Middleton is very much behind those councillors in Galway, and actually one of our own councillors. Uh, William O'Leary, he's uh, also uh, critical of what's going on with uh, asylum seekers and in particular, he will be speaking out on behalf of Abbeville, the Abbeville B&B in Formoy, uh, which is to be used to house, I think it's 56 uh, asylum uh, seekers yesterday. Councillor Willie O'Leary said, "If Fianna Fáil was blaming councillors for breaking rules, then they've lost sight of what is really going on." Always 103 103. and then some reaction to our email in earlier from the listener who has a. <laughs> an issue, I can't say a problem, an issue with her wonderful, now she described her as her wonderful uh, mother-in-law. Her mother-in-law collects the kids from school every day, brings them home to her house, cooks them dinner um, most days and she's wonderful and she's particularly good with the grandchildren but other mothers at the school gate have started to tell this mother that the granny is allowing kids in the car without the safety belts on and some of the mothers are describing the grandmother's driving as erratic and another mother has stepped in and said look in the new year I'll collect the children for you, I'll drop them to your mother-in-law's uh, house but the problem is that the mother-in-law at the moment they give her €50 Euro towards the cost of Petra and obviously if this other mother is taking on the role of dropping the children Home, the 50 euro will have to go to her instead. And the mum who's contacted uh, us uh, says, you know, she knows the mother in law is going to be down funds because she uses the 50 euro for petrol in her car for the, uh, for the week. And also, they're, they're having Christmas dinner with the mother in law. And if she's going to have to bring it up, before Christmas and she doesn't want Christmas Day to be awkward and she was looking for other listeners thoughts and comments. Tom Inrath-Gormick says he presumes the daughter-in-law knew what way the mother-in-law was driving before she asked her to collect the children from school. Uh, Can she be sure that the other mothers are telling the truth uh, about her? Has she been in the car with granny? Has she gone for a drive to see how granny actually drives? Someone else says it's very easy for this mother. It's your child's children's safety that you're talking about here the day they fly through the windscreen because they haven't got their seatbelt on it would simply be too late so there's one person saying move the children get the other mother to collect the kids instead Maureen says I'm just wondering from that email uh, Patricia is that lady only giving her mother-in-law 50 euro in total that granny is feeding the children and caring for them she should continue to pay her the 50 euro and also give the other lady 50 euro to drop the children home. If she was paying anyone outside the family circle, it would be costing her a lot more money than 50 euro a week, says Maureen. Stephen and Mallow says on the mother-in-law's erratic driving. Firstly, get the children to use their seat belts. Pay the mother-in-law 25 euro towards the cost of feeding the children every day when they come home from school and then give the other 25 euro to the mother mother who's going to be dropped the children to the mother-in-laws. Win, 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 says Stephen from Mallow. So split the money. OK, there's another uh, suggestion. Keep your thoughts coming in on that particular issue. 0818 103 103. And then when we were talking about the flooding in Ballonhasic and what the good people of Ballonhasic have, have done, a community of eight houses getting together and they've built their own flood defence uh, good on them. Tom in Bantry is involved in the flood defence in Bantry. He said they need to get aluminium barriers fitted into all of their homes. They slide up and down outside the door and then non-return valves on all the pipe work coming into the houses. They also need to drive down timber stakes all along the barrier they have built to stop it from moving. If they add soil to the barrier, they could grow willow and that would be great to keep back the flood. So there's a group in Bantry seem to be doing their own flood defence as well. And I thought it was great the Ballonhasek Village Association they set up a GoFundMe page and people Helps them out which was uh, terrific and just shows the wonderful community spirit that you have in a village like that 0818 103 103 and we've had a lovely call in from Tom who lives on his own in the Donerail area and he was at home yesterday and he got a total surprise out of the blue there was a knock on our Tom's door so out he went and there was two members of the Shia corner standing at the door, big smiles on their faces now. So Tom, or Tony, sorry, Tony didn't get a fright think he's been arrested or anything. But anyway, he said hello to the two guardies standing at Tony's door, and they had come with two boxes of food. He said he was absolutely delighted, and he says just wants to call it out. He thinks it should be mentioned. He said too many are too quick to give the Guardi bad press, and you don't hear good news stories uh, like that. Isn't that wonderful? And it, is that happening? Is that quite a regular occurrence? We'll maybe check in with the guardie about that. And obviously, the local guardie know the people that are living on the on their own, and know the people that could do maybe a little bit of a lift, a little bit of a help in the run up to Christmas. But it was a total surprise, to Tony. He didn't know they were coming. He hadn't looked for any any help, and he said he's absolutely delighted. So thank you, Tony, for your call, and well done to the guardie in Donorell for what looks like a very very generous act. Oh eight one eight one zero three one zero three. C one zero three jobs. Tria Oil Products, they've got a vacancy for a truck uh, driver for rigid and arctic deliveries it's in the Kilty and Bandon areas. Call Owen 087 7717035. A construction worker is wanted for industrial pipe insulation in the County Cork areas. CVs please to mullenowen one at gmail.com. Design Pro Automation. They've got a vacancy for a qualified level six electrician. It's with experience in electrical automation systems. It's for work in Limerick County. You can call them at 086 014 7680. And healthcare assistance with QQI are FITEC Level 5 in older persons care. Wanted for Nazareth House in Mallow. CVs please to HR.mallow.com at nazarethcare.com You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103.
1: You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed.
3: Now last year my next guest wrote her first book of fiction which was inspired by her special needs daughter, Glenn Myers. Eleanor O'Kelly Lynch has just published a follow-up book to The Girl with Special Knees and this book is called The Girl with Stars in Her Eyes and I'm delighted to say that Eleanor joins me in studio this morning. Good morning G Eleanor
2: morning Patricia and you
3: are very uh, welcome it it is great to see you well done uh, firstly Uh, and I suppose I need to take you back you always wanted to write a book
2: I did. I always wanted to write a book. I think as a child, I was a reader, like we all were. There wasn't an awful lot else to do in my day. Um, I loved enna Blyton. I loved Grimm's Fairy Tales. I just loved that world that you sort of stepped into, Mallory Towers, you know, St. Clair's, those worlds that you stepped into, that you were li- literally living the experience. And I always thought, I'd love to write something like that. But of course, wanting to write something as a child and actually doing it, as an adult, uh, two different things. But yeah, it was yeah. always in my head. And then,
3: you know, you did some creative uh, writing and, and and all of that. And that kind of was the start of it.
2: It was. I did. I did a writing weekend um, down in Shirken Island um, with um, in the North Shore. I think North Shore is called the, the hostel down mm-hmm. there. And um, it was a fantastic weekend. But on the Saturday, she said, away you go now. Because we were, of course, writing little stories and little pieces. And she said, well, "Where are you go now and write what you want to write. That, that dream that you have, whether it's a book or a poem or a website page or a story. Write the first page. And she sent us off for two hours. And I thought, I've no place to hide. I've no place to run. The idea was in my head for a few years. But, of course, getting it, I'm a bit of a procrastinator. So ideas swirl in my head all the time. But they don't actually get to paper. So I, I sat down. Um, in that couple hours, and I wrote the first page of what I didn't realise would be a published book. But it's a book I and, wanted to and write. And was that
3: the actual first page? Of it the, was
2: the actual first page, and of the first I really book. didn't change it much at all. Wow. Well, and when I, do you know what? I, it was a very strange experience when I wrote that first page. When I put my pen down because I handwrite, um, I was very excited. I said. I have a character here, and her name is Dahl. And I felt her voice. I didn't have to force it, or how would she speak, or what is she thinking? It just came, and I said, "I need to find out more about this character." And the first page, when uh, I when I read it out, she said, "Oh, that sounds like a real character," and I was off then.
3: After yeah, reading. and and that that wonderful character of uh, Dahl is a child uh, with special needs who has who has a very difficult uh, life. Yes, but in An altered universe. You have her living an incredibly different life.
2: Yes, it's a dream, isn't it? I suppose it's a it's a dream that you have that your child who has a hard life and who has a life where there is illness and there is discomfort. Lauren has, you know, lots of different challenges, and and often is not a happy child. It's not an upbeat child. Um, you don't know what's going on in her head. She can't speak. This is my daughter in real life. And yeah, I, I said I would love to transport her off and uh, give her an alternative, another life on an, in another dimension. And maybe that life would be more, you know, she could really fulfill herself. She could really be herself and who she is and her personality and her, you know, have adventures and really enjoy and so, yeah, I introduced this world of Almazova, another dimension where she lands and, um, yeah, has great, has, has a great time.
3: And she can walk and run and sing yes. and dance and speak yes. and do everything that she can to do in, the, in this that's life. Right. And that's the the, 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 the the genesis of the uh, story. And, yeah. and, you know, you, you write with great honesty as well, because, you know, you write about doll uh, self-harming. And, you know, for those of us who have a child with special needs, you know, mm. I, like I, I, we have it with Marcia uh, as well. And it, it, it's it's a very difficult thing to explain to parents who don't who don't witness it, to watch your child in that much pain that they want to hurt themselves.
2: Yes, exactly. And, and not to know why. Yeah. Not to have any reason why. I find it, you know, I often said this, that and I think you might agree with me, Patricia. It's not really the disability itself, the syndrome that Lauren has. I mean, obviously, that's very challenging, but the real challenge is seeing a child who isn't happy and who is emotionally disengaged. And as you say, she, you know, she would kind of break the skin in her face and sort of cut into her face with her little nails mm. um, and just gouge out, you know, sort of her skin. And to yet yeah, it's, it's very hard to, even to articulate for me how devastating it is to watch. I I remember going to meditation classes once and she was talking about detachment detaching yourself from what's going on and I said how do you do that because I can't and I never could I could never detach I tried to use affirmations and saying you know everything will be fine she will be grand you know this will change. Nothing really, I found it very, very difficult. Yeah, to
3: it go is. Yeah, To I, see someone I, I, unhappy, to see a child unhappy. Yeah, I, and I, I, I what, what I think about is when at times when Marcia goes through like challenging, now overall, Marcia is, is a great, happy little child, but she yes. can go through uh, periods where, particularly COVID, I think knocked the stuffing out of her, where the joy was gone out of her life, yes, and joy. that was heartbreaking, mm-hmm. you know because I had seen her joyful, and then suddenly yes. I, that spark was gone, so yes. yeah that I and, and
2: you know that spark you're talking about yeah, and we do see that in real life with lauren it's magical, mm. it is brilliant, what's mm. seldom seen as was is wonderful, so when she is in good form or when she's smiling and and, and we do get glimpses of it um it's And there's no better feeling, really.
3: And the one key, I think, to both of your books, and it's the advice that's always given, write about what you know.
2: Yes, exactly. And
3: that's important for you.
2: It is. You know, this is the book, Patricia, that I wanted to write. I never thought about an audience. I never thought about what genre is it. I, I never thought about the market. And even if I didn't know about all those things at the time, I would still have written this book. This was the book I wanted to write. I was actually in my head taking you know, this character and going with her through her experiences and her and you know, she's got goal, she's got a goal to complete, she's a quest, she meets all these different characters, she's afraid. Are you
3: following her in your I mind?
2: Following her in my yeah, mind. And yeah. I thought, I don't care about audiences. It even it, it never gets published, it doesn't bother me. I want to write this story about bringing magic into the sort of the joylessness. Um, And, you know, who knows? Because science tells us there are different dimensions.
3: You don't know. And that
2: we live different versions of ourselves in different dimensions. So maybe maybe Lauren is living, maybe maybe she she is.
3: And when you start to write book one and book two, did you know where the story was going? Never had a clue. I know. Now, in book two, I
2: had some ideas, okay. right? and I was excited about the ideas. Where, because I mean, there are other characters in the book. There's the dad, there's the mum, and there's the there's sister, Lavinia, and there's Lavinia, <laughs>
3: there's Lavinia. That, one. <laughs> that we'll say no more. You'll have we'll to read the book no more, to find out about her, Lavinia.
2: She's in book one. She disappears then. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. So, yeah, I suppose you were saying right about what,
3: what you know, what,
2: you know. Yeah. Um, and if I hadn't sort of, I suppose, had the experience, first of all, um, with being a parent, being a mother. I don't know if I could have written that kind of a book, you know, mm. um, but yes, I never knew where it was going to go. I just knew she was. And then when I got her to Almazova, I thought the pressure what do I do now? What does she do here? I didn't want her chasing rabbits and sort of singing amongst (laughs) the daisies and meeting some, I didn't want that kind of a book. I wanted her to really, um, I wanted to challenge her and I wanted to explore what would this little child do if she was faced with, you know, some sort of a serious quest that she had to perform, how would she step up? Mm. Um, so bit by bit, you know, I used to go off spinning sometimes, um, you know, on the bike um, and after a spinning class, during the spinning class as the music and, you know, you're tearing around the pedals and ideas would come to me then. Yeah, if I was out walking, ideas would come to me.
3: Did you ever get a block?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Did you, were you stuck? Yeah, stuck and the sort of, you know, the climax of the book, in book one, I'm talking about, yeah. oh my God, it was weak saying, how am I going to bring this to an end? You know, it's like you're knitting a cardigan that's going to, on like for yeah, 20 feet. Yeah, it has well, to stop. It has to stop. <laughs> yeah. Um, But then when you do get that flash of, I know what I'm going to do now.
3: Yeah, it's a great feeling then. And I remember talking to you after uh, book one. Like, when you finished book one, you knew that book two was there.
2: Yes, I already had started. I actually started book two once I finished book one. Yeah. Without really... It was during COVID and and I, I, I missed the family. And I missed, you know, what would they do now, those parents that had a lot of difficulties, you know, are they sort of all cosied up now? or What about, you know, my 16-year-old little character, Andy, who's the gorgeous sister. and successful? So yeah. You know, she's a very bright girl, but she's a bit of a rebel. And she started going out with the the kind of the bad boy. As the the boy from say.
3: the wrong side of the tracks. Yeah,
2: the gorgeous.
3: Give him a chance. Yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> and she's madly in love with him. But what's going to happen, really? Yeah. So. I, I was curious, and that's why I sort of started on Book Two, and also I had time Patricia and When I finished Book Two, I went back to Book One then to do more editing and thought, you know when I did publish last year, I thought, well, Book Two is ready to be edited, and I should mm. put put a bit of work into it, but yeah it was a little easier to write because the character is... Forever. Yeah, because... Yeah, because... Yeah. because
3: and, and, and what I love is while Dahl is having uh, the adventure, I love the fact in this book we are finding out more about the mother, the father yes. uh, and the sister.
2: Yeah.
3: And one particular part of the book that I enjoyed was where Sally, the mother, took on the social worker. Yes, I, yeah. I, I and, and I think all of us who are parents of a special needs child at some stage have taken yes. on a professional yes, who I really agree. do not know the life that we live. Yes. And it yes. just I was cheering for oh, her. Really I haven't. really was. I really was. I
2: enjoyed writing that yeah. because it's more conflicts. And I suppose, Patricia, when you're writing a book, nobody wants all misery. Mm. Nobody wants all sort of a happy clappy. People like a bit of drama. Yeah. And I thought. You know, this is true to life. Now, I did speak to a social worker and a nurse to get the sense of what might happen in a particular mm-hmm. situation. But yeah, I think, per- you know, sometimes professionals with the best will in the world, they really don't walk in our shoes. No. So they don't mm-hmm. really get it. There's a bit of professional speak. And yeah. And I sometimes
3: like they don't listen, which yes, is the one exactly. the part that annoys, annoys me. And the ending, and you very much put the end, you've left it open.
2: Yeah, I have left it, it open. Yeah, it yeah. could it could go further. I wasn't sure what was going to happen to Dahl in book two. I had yeah. I had a lot of, you know, different ideas. Yeah. But um I want no, no. spoilers. No, 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 um, no. But yeah, there's a twist in yeah. it. And yeah. who knows? Who knows book book book
3: book three. <laughs> and and how did book one go, by the way? very well Did i was it.
2: absolutely thrilled with it. it's so hard when you're when you're self-published yeah. because you are a one woman band you're doing everything mar- marketing district distri- you know distributing distribution you know to the stores uh collecting you know selling um social media it's all a bit of a juggling act yeah. but um i i just wanted readers to read it and come back and say they enjoyed it and That's what happened. You You got great feedback. Um, And great feedback. And is
3: there a massive buzz about walking into a bookshop and seeing your books on the shelf? shelf?
2: There is. It's brilliant. You just want to shout to people saying, Come over here, yeah. see this book. You Might. should
3: read it. <laughs> I always remember Maeve Binchy, Laura Merciner. I used to love interviewing Maeve Binchy, but she told me a story after her first book. Mm. She was so excited about seeing it up, up on, yes, uh, on, on a bookshelf. And she used to go into bookshops and push them out to the front.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> now, that is a good idea, actually. Yeah, yeah, just but the there's shooting. cameras everywhere. I now, know, yeah. yeah, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It, was a, it was a different
3: era. So, where, where is the book on sale? <laughs> so, the book is
2: on sale in Vibe and scribes. Um, I'm hoping and I think I'm nearly there, Eason's in Mahan Point, but also in Middleton books, for Moy Books, Eason's in John Garvin, um, and on my website, EleanorOKelly Lynch.ie
3: well it's um, wonderful it's it's wonderful uh, well done and it's a pleasure as always Eleanor uh, to have you in studio and I'm already looking forward to book three so go in go and write <laughs> it there. I better get going <laughs> It's Eleanor O'Kelly Lynch and the book is called The Girl With Stars In Her Eyes Now during Covid a WhatsApp swimming group was set up in all that has really grown over the last few years culminating in a wonderful book which was recently launched called Saltwater Souls and that captures why people take to the sea's to swim. Linda Donoghue was the person who originally set up that WhatsApp swimming group and uh, Linda joins me this morning. Good morning to you Linda. Good morning Patricia.
4: Good morning from uh a South, a bright and cheery Southeast Cheer in
3: y'all Fantastic. So and, can, and can I firstly ju- just say, in case the time runs out and, and I forget to say it at the end, it, the book is just delightful from start to finish. You've, it really is a joy. So well done to everyone that was involved uh, with it. But I need to take you back as to tell me about why you decided to set up this group and how many initially joined. Great. Thank
4: you, Patricia. We're only weak from ourselves. You know, it's absolutely wonderful. It's a real community initiative here in y'all. So we're very proud of the book. So I suppose it all started in 2020 and I was working full time. So four of us started swimming and I suggested that we create a WhatsApp group to share tight times with each other. And I suppose most importantly, to ensure that we never swim alone. So it was during COVID times, so we just swam and went back into our cars straight away. Well, I suppose we found something constant there in the sea amidst uncertain certain times. So as the months passed, we began to swim every day and then others started to join. So I suppose from a WhatsApp group that started with four people has now grown to... I was just looking at it a while ago, 251 swimmers.
3: That's incredible. Yeah. That is is just uh, incredible. And have you swimmers of all ages? we have swimmers of all ages. I mean, we have swimmers
4: from their early 20s up until their 80s. And, you know, we're all in awe
3: of each other. It's brilliant. And how often do you all head out swimming?
4: So... I suppose if it's safe to do so, because safety would be our priority, a uh, pod of swimmers can be seen swimming at the front strand here in Yal from as early as 6.30 to late evening. Now, some swimmers are seasonal swimmers and they just swim in the summer. But There's a core group um, that is expanding every year that's swimming every day. So it's wonderful to see it, really. You know, we're absolutely thrilled.
3: So as you say, safety is a priority. But if there's, you're saying every day, that means swimming in all weathers.
4: Yeah, um, there was a group of them went in. I'm hoping to go in at lunchtime now. There was a group went in earlier on today. So it's lovely. I mean, your Beach is beautiful altogether. So we're just privileged to have us at our doorstep. And there's a great sense of community there, you know. So I suppose where the, the Booker Falls was, the big question, you know, often asked is what compels us to get out of our, <laughs> yeah, well, of our warm the bed. The big you know.
3: question is why? Why yeah. do you do it? <laughs>
4: So I suppose, um, you know, what compels us to get out of our warm beds and scrape the frost off our our cars in the morning to swim in freezing cold sea, I think it's about 10 degrees at the moment. I I personally think, um, Patricia, it's all about connections, connecting with nature, connecting with ourselves and connecting with each other. So behind every behaviour is a story. And that prompted me to ask people last year, what the story was, why do they get out of their beds in the morning and go swimming? And what, I thought I was only going to get about five or six people and I'd staple it together and we just would have it. Um, but it just, oh my God, it just evolved into something magical and people shared stories and reflections and poems and beautiful photographs of y'all, beautiful and I set up a Gmail and I knew from the very onset, I suppose it was very special because when people write about your own life, you know, you're vulnerable You put it out there.
3: Yeah. So and, s- and some of the stories are, you know, talking of loss, of, of great loss mm-hmm. in, in someone's yeah. life and, and what, they, what the water does. I mean, uh, one Mum, who, who, who had a number of devastating pregnancies, you know, talks about the sea allows me to rebalance, to accept there is a greater force than me to battle against nature's futile. Uh, the sea gives me strength to navigate life with grief and to live in honour of life. I thought that was beu- beautifully put. And gorgeous poems. And then the photography, Linda. Who's responsible for all the photographs? Oh, the
4: photography is amazing. Well, the swimmer is and local photographers. And we had um, two swimmers then really looked after the photography, Catherine Davis and Martina Hoopley. And they, you know, it was when we had um, Joe Breslin and myself then kind of looked after the stories and then we had Lisa Tracy, who has experience in printing. So there was a core group and there was also others who had helped out um Christina and Sally and all them, all of us, others who had helped out in collating the, the stories together, but can I just say, we are just grateful for people trusting us with their stories. I mean, I know myself the value of storytelling, and we just honored each person's story. And it was very important to have, you know, you said there, some of the stories are quite emotive about grief and loneliness and loss and, and joy. And it was very important to marry the story with the photographs. And we had a printer, a marvelous. Graphic designer Eva, um, in Flanagan Print here in Yall, and it was all a really community effort, so we're delighted. And um,
3: Patricia, and it isn't just about you know braving the elements, of getting into the sea. You've you've managed uh, to raise over ten thousand euro for you know all different charities. Everything from the, the Simon Community to you did the Daffodil Day swim. You did a Darkness into Light uh, swim for for a You've done Christmas Day swims for Vincent de Paul, and of course the proceeds from this book are going to the RNLI, isn't it? That's right. Um, the net
4: profit from the book goes towards our local RNLI. Who have shared such valuable information about safety in the water and we're extremely conscious you know of keeping safe in the water and the RNLI come out and give talks especially now with cold water swimming and the importance of you know staying safe in the warm yeah. in the water. And, 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 and it, it, run,
3: it, yeah. it has become popular hasn't it I think since Covid there seems to be more and more people all over the country.
4: Yes I, I think so too um, and we've thought you know when you find something good you kind of latch on to it and I think that there's a great sense of community and this is a book about sea swimming and connections, but it's also a book about life Patricia and it really I think it really doesn't matter what you do once you find something that gets you up in the morning and gets you out and meeting people and it, it, it's a story and I think that's the attraction of it and you know, it's a safe place for us to chat with each other. I love the cup of tea in the morning. So it's great. I just love that camaraderie. And that is really important.
3: Yeah, hear. and and you can see from the, just looking at the photographs, even, you can see f- the friendships that have been formed and they're yeah. friendships that will last a lifetime.
4: Yeah, we're, we're very lucky, you know, we're very lucky here. And of course, some of us then you know, go for a walk afterwards because there's a gorgeous boardwalk here in y'all. And um, the the book just celebrates y'all in all its positivity. And, you know, there's a great section of the book um, about those who swam years ago, and we're very lucky for the Horgan photographs. There's gorgeous photographs, there's little stories and anecdotes about the time of the filming of Moby Dick. And some of your listeners might remember coming to y'all years ago on the train and there's a lovely photograph of that. So we have kind of people who knew the magic swimming before I Variety. Um,
3: mm.
4: And that celebrated and that was a lovely, that's a very special part of our book.
3: It's beautiful. It really is beautiful. And uh, Christine Ryan must be a great the old baking she's got she's She's absolutely great (laughs) Um, she's
2: brilliant
4: oh her her
3: her coconut cake her banana bread and her gluten free chocolate brownies look lush there and the recipes are in the book it's brilliant listen where is where where can people purchase the book and how is it doing more importantly I'm telling you we had a book launch and
4: all of y'all came out to us and that's the beauty about y'all you know you have people supporting each other and people are scoffing us in the street um, to say, you know, well done, the book. So we actually, would you think of that, we had a book launch and we, after about 15 minutes, we sold out. <laughs> so we've reprinted. So we've 1,200 copies gone already. So you can get them in Yall, um, in Crees. We're very lucky that the Crees, Read and Write and Live in Yall and we've gone across the border to Dungarvan, to Isabel's Place in Dungarvan. You can stop them there. Or we have a Gmail and I can we can post them up to people. Okay. You know, we're looking for a places in Cork because we have had huge interest. Chris Dunn and the Evening Echo wrote a very good, lovely article. So, y'all see Swimmers 2020 at gmail.com. If people want to send me an email, I can arrange to...
3: And are, are you open to new members joining your Sea Swimmers? A- yeah.
4: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's a lovely way for people, you know... to to meet people as well you know and if you're new to a town then it's a lovely form of connection now there are some days you might just feel like going for a swim but at least you know going for a swim and you mightn't feel like the chat afterwards but every Saturday um, we have one of the swimmers Martina and of course Christina, Christine with her her baking day make porridge and
3: oh it's lovely it sounds fantastic it sounds great you're a great little community a great little family of sea swimmers long may you continue um, Linda and listen thanks a million for talking to us and good luck with the book Saltwater Souls thank you and happy Christmas to everyone and stay safe in the water thanks a million many happy returns bye bye thank Thank you you, Linda bye 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 -bye. a reminder to you if you've got a gardening question for Peter uh, are you going to do some planning for next year for your garden and you're stuck and you'd like to get some advice from our expert gardener get your question Questions in 0818 103, 103 or you can text your WhatsApp questions to me here in the studio 0862 103, 103. Can I give a couple of shout outs, uh, please? I've been asked to mention that the Donal Murphy Memorial Hurling Tournament It returns for its second year. It'll run on St. Stephen's Day in Caragoone in Mallow at 11am. This year, they will be raising money for St. Finbar's Ward in the Mercy University Hospital. Now, this is very important to Mallow GAA because St. Finbar's Ward was the ward who looked after so, so well the dearly departed president of Mallow GAA, Liam Sheehan, who sadly uh, passed away uh, this year. They're looking forward to seeing uh, everyone bright and Early on St. Stephen's Day in Carragoon at 11am for the Donald Murphy Memorial Hurling Tournament. And staying in Mallow, the Thomas Davis Pipe Band dropped me in a gorgeous centenary calendar for 2024 that they have just launched and the calendar is just a small sample of the photograph archive that have been collected over the hundred years that Thomas Davis Pipe Band has been in existence. and anyone who purchase one of these calendars and if you go through all the pictures you may actually see a member of your family so it's bound to trigger lots of memories. Now the committee has taken the decision from the start that a number of charities are going to benefit from the sale of this particular calendar so they've selected bambulance that's the it is fantastic voluntary work providing families with uh, seriously ill uh, children lifts to and from the hospital in the special ambulance the South Infirmary Hospital for Head and Neck Cancer Department it's for those uh, services they provide to patients and families that are living with cancer and they're also going to split the money with Mallow Meals on wheels who do the most amazing work uh, to feed a multitude of people uh, every day, and the Thomas Davis Pipe Band wanted to remind people that next April they will be holding a photo archive exhibition at Mallow uh, Library, and that will give them the opportunity to show case memories from the last hundred years and they 're still putting a shout out to anyone in the community who might have photographs of the Thomas Davis Pipe Band over the years if you do if you make contact with any of the band they can arrange to scan and copy the photograph and they'll return the originals uh, back uh, to you so thank you to uh, Paki O'Donoghue for getting that calendar into me this morning and the calendar if you haven't got your calendar yet and you're in the Mallow area you might like to purchase one of the Thomas Davis Pipe Band's centenary calendar they're on sale in the Mallow Primary Health Centre Weedle's Pharmacy on the Cork Road Uh, Elaine Foley's Food Store Katie's News Agent Dano's Super Value they're also in Food Capers Present Time Ben Hare Phillips Bookshop the Centre on Main Street and at O'Keeffe's News agents. So good luck to everybody involved with the Thomas Davis uh, Pipe Band. It really is a gorgeous, gorgeous calendar that they've put together. Now let me go and take a look at some of your thoughts and comments uh, coming in. Uh, lovely uh, comment in reacting to my interview with Eleanor O'Kelly Lynch who joined me in the last hour to talk about her second uh, book and Liz, is there a name on this? Risen no? says Hi Patricia, really enjoyed your interview with Eleanor O'Kelly uh, Lynch and I loved hearing about her engagement with her characters. I too am an amateur writer and I'm a bit, I was a bit stuck on a part of the book at one time where my character had committed a crime unintentionally I might add. I had the notion to ring the Garda in Cork to see how my character would have been dealt with by the law. So on phoning the Garda station I explained my conundrum and I asked if the Garda might have a minute for some advice. He was lovely and he agreed. Then on hearing the details of the crime that my character had committed, uh, he said, after what she did, the superintendent is going to insist that she faces charges. I was shocked as my character was a decent person, so I explained, oh no, I don't want her to go through all of that. And he, he replied, but she's not real, and he didn't know what to say. When I quickly said, "But she's real to me," <laughs> we both burst out laughing. Then it's hard to explain how a writer has people with their full lives populating their minds. Uh, anyway, good luck to Eleanor. Her books sound wonderful, and they are—they are beautiful. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you get into the character of the book, and the book uh, and the characters are certainly very real to you. I hope you—I I hope you completed that book, and that uh, and that your character didn't end up in jail and. and sent away for a long period of time and that she got away with it because she didn't mean to do what she did. 0818 103 103 On the issue with the mother-in-law and the bad driving and not making the children wear the seatbelts and what is the daughter-in-law to do, Margaret in West Cork uh, says, tell the children that they must always wear their own seatbelts, no matter whose car they're in, but especially in granny's uh, car. And my best advice to that daughter-in-law is she needs to tread very carefully. You've got to be very careful in that relationship between mother-in-law and daughter-in-law but in fairness in her original email to me she described her, the mother-in-law as wonderful and you know emphasised what a great woman she was and what a fantastic grandmother she is so she just seemed to have a good relationship. She's just nervous in what she's hearing from the other mothers at the gate that the driving is a bit erratic and then someone else says I'm a nana and no way would I charge to mind my granddaughter. It's a pleasure to look after her. My children are very good to me and even though they wanted to pay me, I said the little one makes my day. And there's a lot of grannies and granddads who look after the little ones and they, they do it for no money. But in fairness, I think in this particular case, they give her 50 euro towards the cost of her petrol. And that Covers her petrol for the full week, and I take it from the fact that she would be down money if they take the fifty euro away f- from her. I take it that this particular granny isn't very affluent. She maybe she's just living on the state pension, so she would be down the money, and she uses that money to keep her car going uh, during the week. I get that sense uh, from the uh, email. Oh eight one eight one zero three one zero three. Still getting in reaction from about the councillors in Galway and how the Fianna Fáil party are reacting to the two councillors in uh, Galway uh, who, have, who have come out and have blamed the government for what happened and blamed the government for the reason that that hotel was uh, set on fire and we're now told that the two uh, Fianna Fáil councillors have been reprimanded for comments about the asylum seekers uh, following that fire at the Ross Lake House Hotel in uh, Galway. Somebody said what is wrong with me, Hall Martin those councillors were completely right it's it's a pity that a few more don't speak out and someone else is saying when councillors get elected they get elected to represent the local people they are reflecting the views of the local uh, people and hi Patricia I thought the Fianna Fáil party are meant to reflect the views of the people not the other way around that hotel could also have been filled with Irish homeless people how about dividing the rooms up 50-50 in the future give Irish homeless 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 people the option to move uh, in. I welcome immigrants, but not to the detriment of our own homeless. See, I think the problem with a lot of those units that are used to house international protection applicants. For example, I think with what was happening in that particular hotel, there's 13 bedrooms and they were going to house 56 people in the 13 bedrooms. So they, you know, they stacked them up with bunk beds so there could be six in, in every room. And if you have a homeless family, for example, no homeless family is going to want to live in one room stacked up with six. Six bunk beds. You know, the majority of our homeless people are living in hotel rooms, which are absolutely not uh, ideal. Uh, but w- when you say, oh, we could offer them to homeless people instead, most homeless people wouldn't want to move. And particularly that particular one in Galway, it's a very, very rural, isolated uh, area. 0818103103. And then on a completely different uh, topic, someone says, Patricia, you had a listener on the programme. It was about two months ago where he said he believed money had been stolen from the luggage at the airport by the baggage handlers and he was flying back from somewhere in Spain or was it the Canary Islands. He may well be right. Did you de- see the story that came out this week about workers at Tenerife Airport? I did and I did think of that gentleman. I can't remember, was it the Canaries because he'd already proven that at it, it Cork Airport it definitely his luggage wasn't interfered with and it had to have been interfered with in the Spanish airport and it was money. Some way the case had been opened, the purse was still there but the coins that were in the purse uh, were missing and yes this listener is right, 14 workers at an airport in Tenerife have been arrested and they've been arrested on suspicion of stealing items from people's uh, luggage. Officers have seized uh, items which they now believe were all stolen worth almost €2 million Euro from a group of employees. It's at Tenerife South Airport on Spain's Canary Islands. Uh, a further 20 members of staff are also being investigated. It looked like there was a lot of people involved uh, in uh, this. And that particular airport uh, has airlines, uh, EasyJet, Ryanair British uh, Airways. And I'm assuming Irish... Uh, flights from Ireland, Ryanair flights from Ireland uh, would be going to that particular uh, airport. The National Guard in Spain opened an investigation after a spike in passenger complaints about items going missing from their suitcases. It said the thefts happened after the baggage was placed into the hold of the plane. Seemingly what they were doing was the airport workers were opening the suitcases, taking out the valuables and then shutting them, leaving no sign that the bag had been tampered with. Screens which are designed to stop luggage moving during flights, they were positioned in such a way to hide the actions of what the workers were actually doing. The workers then removed the stolen items from the airport using hidden compartments inside their clothing or inside an equipment that they were because obviously they would be on camera leaving the airport. They gave an example of an expensive ring that was concealed inside in ear defenders, so it looked like that the guy was leaving with the ear defenders on and of course popped inside the ear defender was this valuable ring. Now authorities managed to seize 29 luxury watches, 120 items of jewellery, 22 high-end mobile phones and €13,000 in uh, cash. And the police believe that the suspects sold many of the items online or they were also selling them in local shops. And of course, when people get home and they open the suitcase and they suddenly realise something is missing, you start questioning everything. You know, if there's an item of jewellery, you're thinking, did I pack it into the suitcase? Maybe I left it behind me uh, in the hotel. You know, you'd be questioning everything, particularly when there was no evidence that your case had been uh, tampered uh, with. So it looked like it was a very sophisticated scam. Our theft that was going uh, on. So we'll keep an eye. At the moment, fourteen have been arrested, but there is the possibility that twenty more were also involved. So if that's the case, there's a lot of people, a, a really a lot of people involved uh, in it. Oh eight one eight one zero three one zero three. Barney's taking uh, your calls. Um, somebody says Patricia. Yes, items been stolen from my case. Happened to me. They forced the lock open. They took items um, I've, and it was items that I was bringing back for a friend. I felt ashamed. It was disgraceful and it happened in an airport in mainland uh, Spain. So it is something that has been uh, going on. OK, keep your gardening questions. I can see some gardening questions coming in for Peter. Keep those coming, uh, please. 0818 at one oh three one oh three. The C103 Cork Diary.
2: With Cork
1: County Council reminding you to support local when choosing gifts this Christmas.
3: Choir practice is going on in Donnerail Presentation Pastoral Centre. It's on tonight at seven and they're particularly doing a shout out for new members. Now there will be a community carol service in Bandon's Methodist Church tonight. That's at eight o'clock. They're hoping to fill the church to the rafters so please go along. Nazareth House will have their lotter draw tomorrow three in the afternoon. They have a jackpot this week of 10,000 uh, euro the Dunmanway Christmas swim will take place again this year on Christmas morning in Chidani Beach. Huge crowd participated from Dunmanway last year and they're hoping that previous participants uh, will encourage newcomers to attempt this challenge. It's all in support of the Dunmanway Ward at CUH and they're asking patrons to please gather at half past half past ten and they're hoping the swim on Christmas morning will get underway at 11 a.m. And Skibareen to rowing club will hold their Christmas Day swim for special classes of St. Joseph's and St. Patrick's National Schools in Skipperine. The swim is at 12 noon at Tregumna. All swimmers and supporters welcome. Now fancy dress is optional but there will be a bucket collection on Christmas Day and Skull have their annual Christmas Day swim. Theirs is an aid of the COPE Foundation. Theirs is at 12 noon from Skull Pier. There will be limited registration available for latecomers, and uh, if you haven't registered you can register it on in the morning at half past 11. Now, William, Indonerell was on to us. He organised a raffle for that wonderful charity, Dogs for the Disabled, and he was on to say he raised 835 euro from his little raffle. Well done, uh, William. And he wants me to particularly thank Mora in the Townhouse Cafe and the Chemist and the Post Office and the Ugly Duck hairdresser. It's not a great need for a hairdresser uh, for all of their support and well done to everybody who bought raffle tickets from William. 835 euro. He'll be passing on to dogs for the disabled. Well done, uh, William. Joan Infomoy says she's only getting on to us now but she was listening to the programme yesterday and she was very, very annoyed Uh, listening to the show yesterday. uh to hear teachers complaining about getting Yankee candles and the best teacher mug in the world mugs from the children at Christmas. Any teacher should be delighted to get anything. They're innocent children at the end of the day and no matter what the child gives it should be enough and she was rather annoyed with that. Now Scott in Douglas was on to say do we really need such uh, an, an, an expensive elaborate home for our Irish ambassador in Washington. He was shocked to read online yesterday that we're, we're purchasing a, pro- a property, the Irish state is purchasing a property that comes with a price tag of 11 million euro. I did see online, I think it might, it might have been on the news as well, I certainly saw it online, the interior of this. The ambassador's mansion in Washington DC. It really is incredible. Scotty is right, uh, the price tag is 11 million euro and seemingly it's one of the most expensive homes in Washington uh, DC and we have purchased it for the Irish ambassador. Wouldn't you love to be the Irish ambassador to the US? It is a luxurious nine-bedroomed mansion. It's in the heart of the US capital's embassy belt so it's around us that particular road Design has all different embassies from around the world. It extends to almost 15,000 square feet. Now, it seems since August of last year, the government has actually been renting that particular residence for our ambassador, who is our ambassador to the US. It's a, it's a lady by the name of Geraldine Byrne Nassim. And she took up the job last year. The property comes with two dining rooms. It's got a breakfast room, a library, two sitting rooms. There's a family room. It does come with a swimming pool, a cinema and a wine cellar. And it's actually quite a newish property. It was only built in 2008. Now, a Department of Foreign Affairs spokesperson said that they did a comprehensive review of the department's property footprint in Washington DC and it was decided to dispose of the original property, the original embassy that they uh, had and that had served as the official residence for the ambassador and then they started to rent this uh, property and then they decided after renting it for the last year, they decided, look, we'll go away and we buy, we'll buy it. So the agreed purchase price was around 12 million dollars, which works out at about 11 million euro. But seemingly, it was significantly lower than the figures were previously reported in the media. So seemingly, some people in the media started making out that the property was worth a lot more. It's only 11 million. So if you read anywhere that it was 25 million, well, that isn't, it's incorrect. It's only 11 uh, million. And as one of Ireland's top diplomats, Geraldine Byrne-Nassen, who is our current American ambassador. She's previously served as ambassador in Brussels. She was also ambassador in New York. She's been in Paris. She's been in Vienna and she has been in Helsinki. I think it's one of those gorgeous jobs. I I would love to. How do you become an ambassador? I would love to become an ambassador and travel around the world. 0818 103 103. And you welcome uh, the news that um, drivers suspected of drug driving will be given, a, and then they give a sample at the side of the road, they will be held by Gardaí while a result is being processed. And this is under new proposals which are going to the Cabinet today. And seemingly there's been an anomaly in the current law that hasn't allowed the Gardaí to deter to detain somebody on the side of the road who they think may have drugs in their system. It's the Minister for State at the Department of Transport, Jack Chambers. He's going to publish uh, an updated road traffic bill and he's bringing it to the Cabinet today and he's expecting to get sign-off on it and it includes... New speed limits. It also includes the provision of multiple penalty uh, points to be imposed where more than one offence is uh, committed. So it means if you commit more than one offence and you're stopped by the Gardaí, you technically could end up getting the 12 penalty points and be off the road and only be stopped once by the Gardaí. But drug testing... That now is going to become mandatory at the scene of serious collisions. I do think that is a good move and the Gardaí can now use their discretion in order to drug test drivers. Road safety data shows that more than a third of arrests for drinking while intoxicated this year, more than a third of them were actually for drug use. And a second loophole which allows motorists to avoid being put off the road for six months and instead get a shorter sentence Sentence that particular loophole is also going to be closed. Now, previously, Jack Chamber, the Minister of State, had put forward plans to give higher penalty points. For certain offences during bank holiday weekends. Now, this is something that happens in other countries. I know it certainly happens in the, in Australia. If you get caught on a bank holiday weekend from early on the Friday morning of a bank holiday weekend until late on the Monday night of a bank holiday weekend, if you got caught for speeding in Australia, you get double the penalty points for across that weekend and it was something that Jack Chambers mooted that he wanted to do in this country. He wanted to double the penalty points on bank holiday weekends for speeding. He wanted it for, doubled for the holding of a mobile phone while driving, uh, driving while under the influence of alcohol and our drugs and he also wanted to double the penalty points on bank holiday weekends for not wearing your seat belt. However, those plans are now going to be stalled they, he's saying and the department are saying that they need to have further legal scrutiny. So they're not saying it's gone but it's certainly off the cards for the moment. The clampdown on motorists of course comes. It's part of the government's efforts to try to improve road safety and I suppose anything that we can do. I mean we all dread the idea of getting penalty points but anything that can reduce improve road safety and then at the same time try to reduce the death toll on our roads because it is going to be such a lonely lonely Christmas for so many families this year because already up to yesterday 178 people have died on our roads so far this year. There's been more than 900 serious injuries sustained and we never really get to hear or talk about the 900 people with the serious injuries. I mean many of those could have life altering injuries and they'll never again lead uh, a normal life so they've got to be remembered when we think of uh, road uh, safety and there were 155 road deaths across the whole of last year 2022 so already way gone ahead of that at 178 with a couple of weeks left to go on this year please god there won't be any more uh, road uh, fatalities so there is uh, they're going to Tighten up certainly on the drug uh, testing, but the doubling of the penalty points has been put on the back burner. Oh eight one eight one zero three one zero three. Bernie is taking your calls. We are looking for your. Gardening questions, please, for Peter Dowdle, If you want to get them into to Bernie, you can 0818 103 103. John in the city has been on. This is to do with items going missing from your luggage when you check it into the airport. John was travelling to Portugal. And I said this was before COVID. Oh, in his case, the baggage went uh, missing. They tracked it to an airport in Lisbon. OK, that's in Portugal. Um, But none of his... Luggage ever turned up. The insurance company wanted original receipts for everything that they had in the suitcase. The insurance company was based in the UK and they said if they wanted to pursue the case they would have to sue through the United Kingdom. So he never checks luggage in now. He only travels with carry-on bags. He said people need to be aware that even though they have travel insurance it's probably not worth anything if you need to claim. It's one, I think, travel insurance, particularly for that for items to go missing, it's got to be one of the hardest things uh, to claim on is travel insurance. I I know a, a family member uh, was staying in a, a villa in Spain that got broken into and uh, everything uh, taken, and trying to you know got uh, to get the report from the Spanish police which came back that was sent in photographs of everything that was stolen and whatever and they came back and said there was no evidence of, of a break in even though the safety deposit box that had the door bashed off it with the sledgehammer but they said there was no evidence of a, a break in and just, just kind of thought it's just not worth the aggro of t- trying to take them on. It's one of the hardest hardest things when you're trying to get money out of insurance companies and yet you don't want to travel without having travel insurance with you because you're straight away thinking of a medical emergency I suppose more than anything. Okay, 0818 103 103. Bernie's taking your calls. We're looking for your gardening questions for Peter, please. oh eight six two one zero three one zero three. 103. And Peter Dowd on the Irish Gardener.com joining us for our last slot of 2023. Good afternoon to you, Peter.
5: Uh, an- another year done, please.
3: Another year. Another, we're another year older and wiser.
5: Well, older anyway, whatever, about the second part. But yeah, certainly a year older.
3: We'll drop the wiser bit. OK, now I know yeah. Bernie sent you on an email that Sarah sent in to us with some photographs. Well done, and she got it in plenty of time so we could get it to Peter. It says, hi, Peter. We have a box type bush that has grown considerably despite trimming it back. It is quite top heavy and is wobbly to touch. If we took off the top and the sides, would it survive? Thanking you. And she sent in three photographs of it. What do you suggest?
5: No, I did have a look at them actually, and I actually quite like the shape of them. They're a bit different, aren't they? They're so do a, I. It's a bit nearly like a, like a lantern, nearly. Yeah, but um, I see what you means, that they are top heavy. Now, it's uh, Lonicera natida is the plant, which is it's a real kind of traditional, old fashioned plant, and it it, it, it was well, used to be referred to as poor man's box because it grows much quicker and it's much more much cheaper, if you like, than box to buy. Um, So back in the day, a lot of people would have used it instead of box hedging and for box specimens and things like that. But it's actually a lovely old cottage garden plant. I love it as a plant. Um, and the 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 short answer to the question is yes, you you can. It's not going to harm the plant by doing what you suggest in cutting back the top and cutting it in, so so it's more tapered, I suppose, more 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 conical in shape. It's like an upturned cone at the moment, but to make it the other way around. Um, but don't do it at the moment. Don't do it right right now in the middle of the winter. I would wait probably till end of February, early March, uh, and do it then. But it should it should regenerate from that. No problem at all, really.
3: Okay, Margaret says uh, hi, Peter. My Christmas is it selenium with the orange berries. I've not got one. Yes. Be- not, there isn't one berry left. I wonder what is eating them. I thought they were poisonous to ber- birds. They were laden with berries about two ye- two weeks ago. But when I look out this morning, they're all gone.
5: I don't want to say they're not poisonous to birds because I'm not an expert, and an, and an ecologist or an ornithologist could ring in immediately and say they are. But I wasn't aw- i know they're poisonous to humans. I wasn't aware very poisonous to humans, but I wasn't aware that they were poisonous to birds. So I. I don't know um so to, to, my my on my qualified answer qualified by the by my lack of knowledge is that it is the birds but um, but but whether or which, maybe it's hedgehogs, maybe it's some like you can rest assured you're doing some good work with it. Okay, you're losing the berries, unfortunately, but you are helping uh, local biodiversity. Something is eating them, which is which can only be good. They're only eating it if they need them. Do you know what I mean?
3: Yeah, and I I don't know if you can answer this question or not, but Larry says he's lost all the red berries from his holly tree uh, this year, and he said it's the birds. But he said he was out for a walk yesterday, and about five doors down. <laughs> there is another holly tree and all the berries are on that one. Why are they only eating his?
5: <laughs> they prefer his. Take it as a compliment. <laughs> um, the, 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 it's unusual actually for hollies. I know a lot of people think the birds get the holly berries. But that's why we need to protect them for Christmas. But it's unusual for birds to eat holly berries so early in the season. They're normally one of the last to go. Uh, and it's normally, to the best of my knowledge, the thrush. Now, I, I, as I say once more, I'm not an expert in birds, but uh, I think it's the thrush that normally eats them. Um, the 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 primary eater, if you like, of holly berries. Um, the the fact that they're going so early could be important of a harsh winter to come. I'm not sure. Uh, it could well be. Now the other thing is, and this is happening, and I've I've a couple of beautiful holly bushes at home, full of one of them is full of berries, and the other is dropping its berries. It's not that the birds are eating them, but that the it's dropping a lot of them, um, and. I think it could be a a case of holly leaf blight, which leads to leaf drop, because I am losing some leaves on mine as well. Uh, And I I wonder, is that the same situation? You could be assuming it's the birds. But maybe if you look around the base of the plant, you might see a lot of them on the ground, in which case it could be something else. Um, But uh, if it's the birds, I suppose we just there's so much in nature that we don't understand. We just have to wait and see what winter brings, I think. But if
3: it is something else, can, can, can you do something?
5: yeah if it is holly leaf blight and I don't want to jump to that conclusion and I'm not going to jump to that conclusion with my one either but if it is holly leaf blight then I would say um, uh, treat it with fungicide like a a solution of copper sulphate and water but in the spring I would wait till March before I would do it.
3: Okay hi this is Breathe In Mallow Uh, could you ask Peter is it okay to cut back my holly hedge? I I was planning on doing it in early January is that the right time to do it?
5: i Again, I'd leave it just a bit longer than that, leave it till kind of second half of February, just to, when we're coming out the other side of spring, just in case we do get a, a very cold spell at that point. I wouldn't. When you cut it back, you see you're encouraging new growth and I don't want to do that really when we're still in the depths of winter. So I would leave it till we're coming out the other end. Okay. Gardening which, question. which, of course, which, of course, is technically the day after tomorrow, isn't it? Tomorrow is the 21st. 21st so it's the shortest yeah. day of the year. Yeah. So, yeah. so if we, we we'll begin to see the stretch from the following day. Yeah. So hopefully we're well of that. be a
3: grand stretch in the, evening. and I have to say the mornings have been so dark. I can't wait for tomorrow to arrive and we get some little bit of a stretch. Okay. Question yeah. for Peter, please. Uh, planted two raspberry bushes this summer. How far back do I now prune them?
5: So if you only plant them this summer, is it? Yeah. The summer just gone. Yeah, I wouldn't be too concerned at all about pruning them at the moment. So it's not really a question of how far back when you're cutting back raspberries. It's which stems to prune back. So because these ones are so young, you might need to do any pruning at all. Right. So when you're when they establish when they're a couple of years old, what you're looking for is you're looking for for canes that fruited this year. They're the ones you want to cut. You don't, you don't want to just cut them back. You want to remove them completely to ground level. So uh, the way you'll know the the one from the other is the the ones that are kind of a foxy red or brown color. They're the ones that have fruited already. And can be removed. And it's the ones that were green in colour this year that didn't fruit. They're the ones we want to keep then for next year. So it's not a question of how far back, but it's just identifying the right ones to cut back. And once you've identified, cut them down to ground level.
3: OK, now now we're getting the calls in about the holly berries. John Amitchistan was on to say he had a tr- his holly tree was laden with berries all gone. But he's also noticed they're gone off the hawthorn as well
5: then uh, I I had noticed and we in fact you and I had spoke about this earlier in the winter that there were so many berries and so many plants and I really have noticed that this year now the old traditionally we were taught that, that that was nature kind of taking care of its own and 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 stocking the larder before a harsh winter so there was a sign of a harsh winter to come I think horticulturally it's more a sign of of, of a, a dry kind of April May June um. I don't know is the short answer, but the fact that they're being eaten so early in the season does does make me think that perhaps nature is uh, taking care of the wildlife.
3: Yeah, yeah, and uh, nature has a tendency to do that. Now, here's a great... Uh, te- comment in from a listener saying, what is Peter's view on the following matter, please? I've noticed recently a growing intolerance of trees in urban locations as some people complain about falling leaves. I've mentioned this to people in other urban areas and apparently it's an increasing cause of complaint. Apart from trees being beautiful and leaves bringing colour to our world, I just don't understand this attitude in our current situation with the menace of climate change facing our planet. I'm all for recognition recognising two sides of the argument, but that on this issue, surely the anti-tree brigade need to cop on. No cop pun intended, by the way. How would Peter suggest that such comments can be answered? Is there an anti-tree I, brigade out there?
5: I think anybody who knows me, Trish, or anybody who's listened to me or read my stuff over the years will know my answer to this. I'm a huge, like it's nearly my life's work to try and get more urban greening and more, like... We're still struggling to see the importance of street trees and trees in cities and towns in this country where, there, you know, we're 100 years beyond that. We should be 100 years beyond that. Like many cities now, it's it's well beyond street trees. It's like, but you won't get planning permission unless you have green infrastructural elements such as green roofs or green walls and roof gardens and things like that. We are unfortunately struggling with trees in this country and are to value them. And I don't know what people think we're going to breathe if we don't have trees. We need more trees. Not only do they help with species extinction, climate change, having access to trees in green areas improves everybody's mental health. Our city should be filled with trees, not the opposite. Um, I could go on all day. It's kind of how long have we got one tree? There was a tree down outside Glownton Church, which was particularly... uh, Resonated with me because my father used to put the world to rights there after ten o'clock mass every day with it with his cronies. They're all no. long gone now, but and and so many before that. There was a sycamore outside Glanthorn Church, well over one hundred and fifty years old. They felled it last week. I don't know why they felled it. I've been onto the Cork City Council tree officer. I've been onto a couple of councillors. There is there is rumours being spread to me from social media that there is an anti tree brigade, and that in, in this case it was the church wanted rid of it. I don't know where the answer is, and I can't understand for one second. How somebody could be anti-trees when they're the sustaining all of our lives? I just don't get it.
3: Yeah, the estate where I live is named White Oaks, and there's this massive one. There's just one massive uh, white oak. I imagine it's hundreds of years old. It's a great, huge tree, and I've always said I would chain myself to it if ever comes the day that they try to fell it because it's just magnificent. It's just absolutely magnificent. But yeah, uh, we need to do. We need to do something about it. And I saw I. So, Dublin County Council last week uh, was saying to homeowners in Dublin City to stop putting tarmac and concrete on their front lawns. Obviously, people are doing it to for extra parking, uh, but they're saying that they're losing soakage during heavy rain. So, they're you know, we need green spaces.
5: We do, and this is another thing where we're, you know, we're, you know, it's, 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 it's an embarrassment. We're so far behind the rest of the of Europe and the rest of the the Western world, if you like, because greening grey Britain, which is which is just that kind of having green spaces instead of concrete and that allowing drainage, like we're fifty years behind the UK on this. You know, we really need to wake up to to the the the, the power of the natural world to help us with the problems that we're facing instead of us concreting over everything. You know, stainless Mm. steel and glass isn't going to give us the answers, unfortunately.
3: Okay, Maureen Mallow is doing her bit. She grew a bee-friendly patch in her garden this year. But she said it's starting to look a bit bedraggled now. And she's wondering, what does she now do? Does she cut everything back? Will most things regrow? If she does cut them back, she's got uh, shrubs, big white daisies and yellow daisies and doesn't know what to do with it now.
5: Okay, if it's uh, so bee friendly patch, obviously enough covers a multitude, Trish, as she says, it's shrubs and lots of other bits. So in terms of of the the daisies and your perennial plants and maybe wildflowers that were there, certainly you can you can actually leave them up because some of them, though it may look a bit unkempt, some of them will be giving seeds for small birds and things uh, during the next couple of months. But for aesthetics, if you want, you can cut them all back now. Leave those trimmings on the ground, so let the seeds go back into the soil for a few weeks. Then, then rake them up and put them into the compost bin, and that will clean it up. You know, it'll look much tidier certainly. As regards the shrubs, if they're spring flowering shrubs, I wouldn't touch them at the moment. However, if they're summer or autumn flowering, you could cut them back as well. It's a kind of very general rule of thumb there as to what to do. But um, but cutting it back, cutting back the perennials and the daisies, will certainly give a, a much tidier look to it.
3: Okay, listen, that's where we- we wrap it up for today and for this year. Uh, thank you for all your contributions and during the year. We always get a huge reaction uh, every Wednesday to you on the programme. Have a lovely Christmas and we'll talk to you in 2024.
5: I look forward to it, and Thank you for everything as well.
3: Okay. Bye bye. Take care. That is the wonderful uh, Peter Dowdrell, the Irish com. And can I just give a quick mention to Mary in County Tipperary, who's contacted us because she was in Mallow a few weeks ago visiting a friend and she parked her car in Dunn Stores. It's an underground car park for anyone who doesn't know Mallow. And didn't she lose her car keys? So she was there with her friend. They were looking everywhere for the car keys, couldn't find it. Lo and behold, one of our local councillors, Liam Madden, came across, obviously saw they were a bit distressed and said, What's going on? She explained that they'd lost the car keys and she said Councillor Lee Madden couldn't be more helpful. He went up to Dunn's just to make sure that the car wouldn't be clamped and to see if the keys had been handed in. He then advised her, reported to the Gardaí. So then Mary decided she'd have to get the train back to County Tipperary. So she headed up to the train station. When she got to this train station, Councillor Lee Madden phoned her and said... Happy days. Your keys were handed into the security in done stores. Mary wants to thank Liam Madden for all of his help. She said he just couldn't have been nicer. And she said also there was a vanguard that she in the vanguard this name in Mallow who phoned her afterwards to check she was okay. So take a bow. Off. That's where I leave you for today. My thanks to Bernie Murphy who produced. We'll be back with you for Thursday's edition of the program tomorrow at 10.